This morning, we're going to begin a new series that we're calling Take a Stand. And originally, uh, the idea was that we were going to take three issues uh, in our culture and talk about where, as followers of Jesus, at a minimum, we should know where we stand on those issues and then, you know, why we stand where we do. And, And by the way, we are going to do that. We actually moved that idea to Wednesday evening, so kind of a midweek connect, a spring midweek connect. Uh, that will begin this Wednesday, and we're going to be talking about uh, who's the boss of our lives, what's God's authority, why is he an authority in our life, uh, what, is a, what a biblical worldview is and how that shapes the way we see and understand what's going on around us, and then we're going to talk about the value of life. And so, um, listen, we're not going to tell you just what to think or feel. We're not going to tell you about what we think or feel. We want to take a look at what God's Word tells us about these issues Uh, And I hope you'll join us for that. But as we talked about this, uh, it's important for us to know where we stand. But what we want to talk about on Sunday mornings is how we take that stand. Uh, And so this morning, we're going to start with foundations. As followers of Jesus, what do we we stand on? Hey, if this is your first week with us, my name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here uh, at MCC. Appreciate you joining us online. And a big shout out to Grandma Phyllis for being there with us, almost, if not every week, almost every week online. So thanks for doing that. Hey, in 17, or 1174, uh, the Italian architect Bonanno Pisano began work on what has become his most famous project. It was a separately standing bell tower uh, for the cathedral in the city of Pisa. And that was, there was just one little problem. The builders quickly discovered that the soil was much softer than they anticipated, and the, uh, the, the foundation was far too shallow to adequately hold the structure. And sure enough, the whole structure began to tilt, and it continued to tilt. And the architects and the builders realized that nothing that they could do was going to keep it from tipping or could compensate for it. It took 176 years to build this tower of Pisa, and during that time, many things were done to try to compensate for it. The foundation was shored up. I think my favorite is the upper levels uh, were built in an angle to try to make it look straighter, which, you know, <laughs> but nothing worked. And the tower has stood for 835 years, and there are definitely problems. In 1990, they shut it down for a dozen years. And during those 12 years, there was a $25 million renovation uh, designed to stabilize the tower. They removed 110 tons of dirt, uh, and they lessened the lean by a good 16 to 18 inches. Why was that necessary? Was the tower uh, tilting further and further away from the vertical for hundreds of years to the point where... Uh, the 185-foot tower was 17 feet further south. The top of it was from the bottom. Can you imagine that? Italian authorities were concerned that uh, if nothing was done, it would soon collapse. So what happened? Was it bad design, poor workmanship, inferior grade of marble being used in the building of it? 
The problem was, was what was underneath. It was the foundation, a poorly laid foundation on sandy soil in which the whole city was built, wasn't stable enough to support a monument of that size. I share that with you because Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 7. He talks about what should be foundational in our lives and why that's important. So the story he tells is actually at the end of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's three chapters long. All of it is very practical, and at the same time, it's simple and profound. And then he ends three chapters of teaching with this story. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down. The storms ro- or the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, I don't know if you noticed or not, there's not a lot of character development in this story that Jesus is telling, uh, but he was showing people what people in the first century witnessed every day. In Palestine, then and today, during the summers, the rivers would dry up and basically be a sandy bed empty of water. But in the spring, or in the, in the fall, in the winter, after the September rains had come, those dry creek beds could turn into violent streams in just a few moments after a, a cloud burst. And what was true for them in the first century is still true for us in the 21st century, foundations are important. And here's why. And this is in your notes. I want to make sure you got this. In my life, I should expect storms. I want to make sure you get this because when you read this story, I don't know if you've picked up on this or not, but both the wise and foolish uh, were hit by storms. Jesus would say in Matthew 5, he, talking about God, causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We need to expect storms in our life. I don't know if that's a revelation to anybody in here or not. I don't know if anyone's taken writing that down because, man, I might forget that. We've got to face, we're going to face storms in our life. Wouldn't it be more accurate to say that we're pleasantly surprised if we get through a day and find out that it's been, you know, relatively problem-free? Maybe there have been times in your life when you felt like Isaiah 38, 14, what it says there, Lord, I am overwhelmed. Please, please come to my help. Dr. James Means, in his book, A Tearful Celebration, reflects on his, life, his wife's uh, death from cancer in 1980. He said, my experience is not unusual. I've been in hospital rooms with godly parents and heard their sincere prayers that the life of their child would be spared, and yet the child died. Missionaries entrust themselves to God's safekeeping, but sometimes are murdered. Couples fervently asking God for a child but none are born, or worse. What happened to their prayers? Well, where is the Christian who does not have his own private tragedy to tell? And I wonder if there's anyone who's lived any amount of time at all, who doesn't understand exactly what he said here, and you feel it here. It was just three months ago. I was in a hospital room with three sons as they watched their 63-year-old mom die. She'd had COVID, which she beat. But it left pneumonia, which she could not get past. Perhaps what's obvious to us today is that we face storms because what Jesus says runs, runs contrary to what our culture teaches about how to live. We live at a time when people call right wrong and wrong right. We live at a time when people call 
evil good and good evil. And when God speaks to us through his word, may I just say what we think and feel doesn't factor in. If we follow Jesus, and that's a big if, and I'm not talking about just going to church, but if we actually follow him, he gives us our opinion on issues. And following Jesus doesn't exempt us from life's storms. Sometimes it actually brings them. Jesus isn't teaching a a parable about how to build our homes in protected areas. What he's saying is, your faith is going to be tested. And if the foundation is good, storms aren't necessarily all bad. Paul would remind us in Romans 8, in all things, even storms, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So just a reminder to everybody in the room, there are no storm-free zones in life. So Jesus helped people understand that God is not always going to be there to stop the rain. He's not going to be there to stop the flooding. He's not always going to be there to stop the tornadoes from invading our lives. And I got to tell you, the man who built his house on the sand, he did a lot of right things. For instance, he was evidently diligent. He was energetic. He was a hard worker. It was no easy thing to put up a house in the first century. Uh, there, there were no power tools. There was no Home Depot, right? He had, to, he had to carry stone and cut wood. He had to form bricks out of clay. It probably took him weeks and months of backbreaking work. And he didn't quit. He persevered until the structure was complete. Yet in the end, all of that hard work was for nothing. You know why? Foundation wasn't solid. This isn't a parable about avoiding weather. It's about foundations. When the pressure intensifies from all angles, the outcome is determined by the foundation that we're sitting on. Jesus expects us to be smart about life, to be careful about the priorities that we build our life on, to be cautious about who we listen to and what philosophy of life we choose to live by, because a wrong decision in those foundational areas would prove to be our undoing when the forces and pressures of life begin to mount. I love Greg Elder, says that he grew up on the Atlantic coast, and when he was young, he said he would spend hours making intricate sandcastles. He said whole cities would appear beneath my hands. I don't know if you ever did that. I'm not talking about, you know, filling a bucket with sand and dumping it over and calling it a day. I mean, you know, taking some time on something and really building it up. He said one year for several days in a row, I was accosted by older, bigger kids who would smash my creations. So finally, I tried an experiment. I put some cinder blocks and rocks and chunks of concrete at the base of my castles, and then I built the sand kingdoms on top of those rocks. He said when the local bullies appeared, and, and, and I subsequently disappeared, he said their bare feet met their match. Jesus said the storms of life can meet their match as well if you have the right foundation. And then he tells us how to make sure that our life is built on a firm foundation. Actually, it's in the very first verse, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, do you see what the foundation is for life, what Jesus is telling us our foundation should be? It's his words. And this is crucial, so it's in the notes. I want to make sure you take it home. I take a stand on what God has said. If you never study your Bible, you are making yourself an easy target for our enemy. I like how the message version says, verse 24, these words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life, homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life on. 
This is a picture of James Wallace and his family. He's a home builder from Magnolia, Texas. He attracted national attention. Back in 2004, he and Andy Eckert uh, came together to form Possibility Custom Homes. And their core belief as individuals and as builders is give praise and honor to God in everything that you do. And for this reason, they put a Bible under the concrete of every foundation. By the way, not the only builders who do that. Uh, but Wallace said, the Bible symbolizes the godly principles that we use in our company. We, he said, we kind of do it more for us, really, than we do for anyone else. He said, putting a Bible under the foundation of a house won't guarantee a godly home. He said, it's just a reminder, though, of the foundational strength that's experienced when a family is supported by biblical truth. Now, some of you know, when we remodeled our building back in 2012, we took time before the carpet was laid uh, to write some verses in our classrooms, uh, some are on the walls, under the paint in the lobby. There's a verse uh, that I wrote right underneath where the pulpit is standing now. It's what Paul said to Timothy. He said, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Paul would go on to say, I didn't write all of this down here, but he would go on to say, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Does that sound familiar to anybody? (laughs) Maybe like it could be today? Let me ask you a question. I'd like a show of hands if you don't mind. How many of you own a Bible? Just, I'm just curious. If, put your hands up. Okay. Uh, one more time, if you would. How many of you own more than one? You have more than one Bible in your house. Okay. I'm going to ask you one more question. Please do not raise your hands for this next question. How many of you have read? Please don't raise your hands. How many of you read your Bible at least once this week? Because at the risk of offending you, and I'm okay if I offend you with this, but if you own a Bible and you don't read it, you're no better off than someone who doesn't own a Bible. Does that make sense? Here we go. Taking a stand on God's Word means I'm going to spend time in it. It's not just that I, I hear I'm going to spend time in it. Again, look at what Jesus said in verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine. Now, I've shared with you before a survey from the Center of Bible Engagement. They polled 40,000 people across the country, ages 8 to 80. They wanted to find out how people are engaging Scripture, and what, if any, difference engaging in Scripture makes in how they live their lives. And they said what they found out, they they, they found out something they didn't intend to find out, uh, and actually didn't find out what they thought they for sure would find out. Uh, It kind of became the highlight of the study. The study revealed that if you engage the Bible one day a week, in other words, if you come to church and you hear a message from Scripture... I think that you could count that. You're engaging it one time a week. It really has no impact on your life. If you engage Scripture twice a week, so let's say you go to church one day, and then you read a, read a verse or something a second day, or you read some Scripture another day, basically no impact on your life. They found that if you read Scripture, reflect on it three times a day, So church and maybe two other times during the week, there's kind of a blip, just sort of a, almost a teeny tiny heartbeat, kind of, you just notice something has happened. So what they found out that surprised them was that if you engage scripture four times a week, that it 
that it spikes off the chart. They, they anticipated, what I would have thought they would have found too was if you engage it once, you get a little bit, and then twice, you get a little bit more, and three times, a little bit more than that. Four times, of course, you're just growing. But what they said was, it's kind of a flat line until you hit four times. And when you engage scripture four times a week, feeling lonely drops 35%. Anger drops 32%. Bitterness in relationships, like with your spouse or with your children, drops 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. Feeling spiritually stagnant drops 60%. Viewing pornography drops 64%. Sharing your faith jumps 200%. My guess is you're a little more comfortable because you're reading it. Discipling others jumps 230%. Reading God's Word makes a huge difference. Engaging His Word, a huge difference in your life. God would say this in the Old Testament, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. The New Testament author of Hebrews writes, God's Word is alive and working and is sharper than a double-edged sword. It cuts all the way into us where the soul and the spirit are joined to the center of our joints and bones, and it judges the thoughts and feelings of our hearts. And I don't know about you, but sometimes that's why I don't like reading the Bible, because it's telling me something about myself that I don't want to hear. I like what I'm doing. And I'm hearing sometimes that's not the way to go. Listen, I like this. It's in the notes. Everyone should own a red Bible. I think that's worth remembering. Listen, if you're going to take a stand on God's Word, there's one more thing that needs to be true of you. If I'm going to take a stand, it means I do it. Again, look at what Jesus said. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, right? Puts them into practice. Jesus' brother James would write this. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. There's an exercise, and I know we've done this before, but how we, uh, how we interact with the Bible matters uh, and be, as it becomes our foundation. So if you hear, uh, so we're going to use the hand and the Bible. If you hear, so like you, you listen to somebody speak on a Sunday morning like this, or you have a podcast or something that you enjoy listening to, it, it's like holding the, your Bible with your pinky finger. I mean, it can be done, but you only retain 5% of what you hear. If you only hear it, you retain 5% of it. And by the way, it's just not hard. You don't want to jiggle this thing too much because you're going to knock that Bible right out of your hand. It doesn't, you can't hold on to it very much if all you're doing is hearing it. If you read the Bible, we know, uh, and that's represented by our ring finger, we know that we uh, retain 35% of what we hear. And so you can hold it between those two fingers, but it's not in there very good. Uh, and you'll you're probably going to, at some point, lose your grip on the thing. If you memorize, or if you study, excuse me, if you study Scripture, wow, am I totally lost? If you study Scripture, I'm sorry, if you study Scripture, it deepens your conviction, actually becomes part of the foundation of a quiet time. That's like your ring finger. And so, you know, last week I thought I was, or last service, I thought I was flipping people off. And, and that's my ring finger, okay? So that's my ring finger. Uh, so don't go home talking to your friends. Uh, but if you study it, that's where you will retain 35%, and you have a, a pretty good hold. I mean, you can bounce this thing around a little bit. If you memorize it, right? That's like your index finger, strongest finger on your hand, by the way. If you memorize Scripture, how much of it do you retain? You memorized it. How much, how, much do you, how much did you retain of what you might? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I just, you know, just making sure, all right? right? 
And so you, you have a pretty good grip on this thing. You do all right with it. And if you meditate on it, that's like your thumb. By the way, your thumb's the only finger you have that can touch all four of your other fingers. If you meditate on it, so you take the time to hear it, and you read it, and you study it, and you memorize it, and you're meditating on it, you've got a pretty good grip. But if you will do what it says, it's like putting it in the palm of your hand. And I'm telling you, someone could get this out of my hand, I'm sure. But it's going to be a fight. And there's someone trying to take God's word out of your hand, by the way, and out of your heart. But if you'll really engage it, it's a fight to get that away from you. That's why I like the way the message version said this. These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life, homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words. Words to build a life on. Robert Pike said this also in the notes, learning has not taken place until your behavior has changed. Remember when I said that this was at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and he's talked about all kinds of practical things, altered some of the teachings that they had heard, just great stuff. And then he says, in essence, hearing and reading my words are not enough. You must do them. Because you are laying a foundation for your life with every decision that you make. Hearing and reading is not enough. You must put into practice what I've just taught you. Because you are building a foundation for your life with every decision that you make. So the question isn't so much, will you choose to listen to Jesus' words? The question really is, will you choose to do them? Look at what Paul wrote to the early church. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Most important. This is the most important thing, the biggest deal. And here it is. Christ died for our sins. Can you read those next four words with me? Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Read those next four words. According to the Scriptures. So every week when we come to this time of communion, because we come to this time every week, we remember that according to what we choose as the foundation for our life, according to what you and I choose, we make the decision to make the foundation of our life. That's where we find out what's supposed to be most important in our life. We choose the foundation, and then it tells us what is most important. And what's most important is that God loves you so much he would let his son die for your sins, that he would pay the price for your sin debt that you could not. That's the most important thing you'll ever hear, is that God loved you that much. Most important. And every week we stop and remember. And when we remember, not only do we remember what Jesus did, we remember the foundation that we are standing on with our lives. Let's go to him in prayer. God, thank you for uh, the chance to stop and to hold emblems in our hands that remind us of the most important truth that your word gives us, that which we base our whole life here on this earth and our life after our time here on earth. We base everything on this. It is the most important. And so thank you. 
Thank you for allowing your son to give his life for our sins. Thank you for giving us hope, not just for that life, but for this life as well. And thank you for reminding us of the foundation, what the foundation for our life ought to be every time we do this. Jesus, we thank you for all of this, and we love you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.